In the climate-ravaged year of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven, a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she is willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Reyes Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Q-Code presents Behind the Scenes, with creator Jason Liu. Hey listeners, I'm Shin, one of the producers of Birds of Empire. And I am Jason Liu. I am the writer and creator of Birds of Empire. All right, Jason. So great to have you with us today to talk about the show. Mm-hmm. It's great to be here. Thank you. And a reminder to the listeners to listen to the show if you haven't already, so we don't spoil it for you. Yes, please listen to the show. Otherwise, you'll have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> okay. First question for you, Jason. So Birth of Empire is a project that's very close to your heart. How did it come to be? What were your very first inspirations to tell this story? Well, growing up, I was a a huge fan of fantasy and speculative fiction. And I'm Chinese-American, and I don't think a lot of people realize how kind of corrosive it can be to not be able to kind of locate yourself within uh, the major mythologies of of your culture. Growing up, I never really saw a lot of representations of anybody who uh, looked like me as a hero, you know. So if we want to go way, way back, original wound style, I always talk about um, healing that wound or doing our part. Obviously, no one project can heal that wound, but we can make a, a, a small bit of progress towards that. It would be great. It's been you know, a dream of mine to invent and, and, and bring to life a, a mythology into, into the culture that, um, that features uh, BIPOC creators and cast. And um, we were able to do that with Birds of Empire. And that's the thing I am most, most proud of. In terms of where does it come from, I, I, one of my first loves was mythology, Greek mythology, and also Chinese folklore, kung fu films, and anime and um you know all of that really has always been kind of swirling around in uh in my mind and my imagination Mm -hmm. so yes how did it come to be well just on a really logistical note i just had this kernel of this idea these worlds this kind of post 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 apocalyptic world where we've returned to you know more clan living tribal living whatever you want to call it something that resembles more ancient cultures which i have a, a fascination with and i've known Rob for a bit and he invited me into the Q code office and was like, uh, hey, pitch me your craziest idea. And I was like, I've got just the one for you. <laughs> and uh, to my surprise, I mean, now getting to work with Rob more and, and knowing him better on a creative level, it's not surprising. But in the moment he was like, yeah, all right, let's go. And I was like, all right. Oh God, I have to do it now. <laughs> and then the the creative team here was so amazing and they really, really let me incubate it for a while. And it took three, three years to really 
flesh out the world. And it's a lot. I made it very hard for myself. You know, it's not one tribe, it's four. And then to, to make a world fully lived in and realized, they have to have a societal norms. They have to have kind of moral compass. They have to have their religions, their customs, their histories, and, um, you know, things that differentiate them. And it was it was overwhelming at times, but it was also just really fun to geek out and yeah there's so much going on in these walls and it's pretty incredible and that's a perfect segue into my next question Mm -hmm. which is why so the story is set in new dakota Mm -hmm. so why new dakota and why these um clans specifically like the wolves the rams Mm -hmm. the bears and the birds. Right, like why not other animals? Yeah. Well, the, uh, those animal lobbies were the strongest. Um, no. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I have, a, I have a, just a familial connection to that part of the country. My family came over from China in the 19th century and, and settled around um, Wyoming and, and Kansas and the, that big sky country. And so I grew up kind of going to that area visit my grandparents there and it always just felt very mystical and and awe-inspiring and riding horses uh, across the plains of Wyoming and you know so it has always loomed very large in my mind and it's just you know so much of it is this kind of pristine ancient feeling part of the country part of the world really it's really one of the most beautiful places in the world and it was very important for me to have it be set in America you know because one of the concepts in in creating the world was to have a new fantasy world that is rooted in American mythos that wasn't rooted in this iconography of, of medieval Europe that a lot of fantasy is spawned from, you know, Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones and amazing shows and, and amazing feats of, of creativity. But medieval Europe and knights and literally white knights, they're called. <laughs> um, I felt a little bit shut out from that mythology always growing up. This setting of, of this, this sort of very mystical part of uh, the country in, in my imagination just made sense. It just, in terms of why this animal or that animal, it, it sort of happened organically. I was thinking on the wolves, I wanted a kind of matriarchal warrior clan and tribe, and that felt very wolf-like, you know, and I, <laughs> it's sort of, I didn't think about it too much. It wasn't, they just sort of uh, emerged and I went with it in an instinct. And what was different about this, this was my escape. This project was my escape from, you know, the kind of daily Hollywood screenwriter, director grind and these uh, projects that had a lot of demands and deadlines. And this was just where I would escape into. And I hope it's, I hope that's felt by the audience, you know, that it's somewhere they can escape in and, and live in and, and retreat to. Although, you know, there's, there's brutal things about the world, but I, I think there's something about, you know, um, fantasy or speculative fiction that just like uh, allows you to see a lot of the beauty in your world through a different lens. So, how do you envision each of each of these different worlds? Mm. So, yeah, like in terms of landscape or geography. Well, I think it's something that I can answer that by starting to kind of think about the larger geography of the time and something about setting it so so far in the future. It really allows me and hopefully the audience to envision this very kind of wild and and reclaimed 
geography. So, you know, nothing is, there's not like roads that are cleared and the trees are two miles high, you know, that it's this almost prehistoric kind of feeling landscape, which is really exciting and and cool to me that the earth has sort of reclaimed itself from all the horrors that we've inflicted on it. That's some wishful, hopeful thinking (laughs) on my part. Um, So, you know, seeing, getting to envision this world is something that feels beautiful to escape into. And, you know, the wolves and the limb and these lush Plains. Um, well, normally, I mean, we're in the, in the in the world of the story right now. We're in the middle of a drought, but um, yeah, these uh, plains with these sprawling grasses and and, and trees, and uh, you know, just this open world and the rams. It's these really towering mountains, and I'm envisioning the the Black Hills. But you know, in my mind, they've also evolved and pushed up, and things. Everything's become more wild and and more intense. Same with the bears. They live in this green expanse, as they call it, that feels almost like a like a rainforest, almost. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, the birds kind of live over everyone in these huge one, two mile high, massive trees. So uh, it's connected, but it's connected uh, through people who've adapted to the land rather than kind of bending it to themselves. Yeah. And how did you recreate these walls through sound design and music? Say, what were the notes that you gave our sound designer, Randy, and our composers, um, Darren and Matthew? Yeah, um, well, I was very lucky to get such a, a dream team. Those, those three gentlemen you mentioned are just extremely gifted. And Randy, you know, he just had amazing instincts, honestly. And as a, as a director, I got the privilege of directing all of these too. As a director, I really like to empower my collaborators and especially my designers to design. So the notes weren't really prescriptive. It was more about just making sure he sort of understood the story, the tone, what we were going for emotionally in a moment. It was less about you know, I feel like, you know, where they are here, there's about 10 trees and I only need to kind of go, you know, like... <laughs> My expertise is around the story and performance and supporting that. Yeah. Darren, Matteo, like, same kind of conversations. I mean, we went over some of the things I was listening to, but, like, not being prescriptive about it because, you know, especially with music, can you start kind of using anything that's sort of temp? It's hard to not to kind of decouple it from the thing. So I was, you know, like, let's start from our instincts mm-hmm. and let's build. What does epic quote unquote, you know, sound like, how can we do epic without necessarily tying it to scale? You know, like it doesn't have to be the LA Philharmonic to Mm -hmm. be, you know, and like huge drums. And obviously that stuff sounds awesome, but like, how can we get something that feels immersive and something that feels of another world Mm -hmm. without, you know, having to rely necessarily on old tropes of, you know, that, that I, that I would fall back on as a, (laughs) as a a composer because I'm not a composer, but, you know, music is so important. I mean, they're just like super, super gifted. And I was just like really, really stoked, honestly, to just nerd out with them about the world and see what they came back with. And then, you know, in spotting sessions, we would sit down and talk through what these moments meant to me in the story, meant to the character. And, you know, if there were certain moments we wanted to highlight, elevate. Um, and then they just honestly came back and I was like, yep, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, I wish I could say that I had some more to do with it. But, you know, honestly, uh, they just got it on the first bounce and it just got better and better every time. So, I, you know, I got 
I got really lucky. Nice. <laughs> yeah, love that. That makes a lot of sense too, with the collaboration and mm -hmm. not being prescriptive and all that, so they could actually give that creative input. Yeah. 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 And with sound design, were there conversations like, say, for example, the ground is more gravel or it's more grass mm -hmm. or like the environment is harsher and, and the environment yeah. or, or if the environment is softer. So were there conversations like that? Yeah, oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, there were those logistical things and there were really fun texts to get from Randy and we had an amazing um, gentleman do Foley, I wish. Dan. Dan, yes. Dan did an amazing Foley. Um, you know, I would get these hilarious texts from Randy when I was out. It would be like, so what kind of shoes do the bears wear? You know, and I'd be like, you know, I think it's kind of a mix of leather and then cloth. You know, and it's like I have to kind of start thinking about like, <laughs> you know, kind of what they would walk on. And I, I love that. You yeah, know, I love that. Um, those little granular things. I mean, it's audio, but it's very visual and it's, you know, in its scope in my mind. But you know, you don't always like check through all the mm -hmm. <laughs> little yeah. details and being like, you know, what? so what are Barlin's braces made of? And I was like, well, you know, it's kind of a mix of iron, you know, <laughs> and like, do the, do the Highlanders wear different shoes than the Lowlander? You know, like I, I mean, I could geek out on this That's stuff. That's great. And what's, what's interesting about it is, you know, even within audio, you have to do yeah. costume design, mm -hmm. you have to do set design, right. you have to do, um, you know, character design and like, there's a lot of, you know, how tall is Barla? You know, like yeah. Randy was just, you know, he's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant, brilliant designer. <laughs> so like, you know, the questions were always super specific, focused, but really, really smart, like really perceptive. You know, it showed up in, yeah. the, in the design in a way that was like really smart, really like centered. But, I, you know, it's something I learned in a great design teacher in, in college uh, was... You know, if if you come away from a project talking about any one element, that element sort of failed. Mm. Weirdly, failed is like kind of a hard, uh, kind of a harsh word. But what you want is you want to lift up the story. You all want to kind of come together and, and disappear. Right. There's a great Japanese actor, Yoshio Ida, who is one of my favorite actors, and he has this book called The Invisible Actor. That he talks about, you know, his goal is to disappear, mm -hmm. you know, into the play. Um, and that is a kind of ethos I, I like to have with my writing, with my directing. I want it to just feel invisible, you know, and, and this cast, I know, is, I cannot say enough about them. They all are just so brilliant, like entirely BIPOC cast and, and just so, so, so gifted. And, and definitely you, you get that with them. It's just the kind of magic that happens when you get a, a lot of amazing people together uh, on a project. So, I agree. Um, the, the team's amazing yeah. and everything just came together beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from like every element, like Kelsey, our, our AD, and we had an, um, our, our, our reader, Mara, who is uh, absolutely incredible, absolutely brilliant reader uh, who read all the parts opposite our, our actors and, you know, such a huge part of, uh, of this piece. But yeah, everyone, everyone. It's just uh, incredible. So... Yeah. Shout out to the team. Yeah. Let's go team. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I got to ask you this. Mm -hmm. So are there any specific sounds or sequences that you especially love? Mm. Gwendolyn, who plays uh, the keeper, I could listen to her voice all day long. Um, I, <laughs> I could listen to her read the phone book. Does the phone <laughs> book still exist? Oh, God. 
Um, uh, if it does, I could listen to her read it all day. Um, she's absolutely brilliant, 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 brilliant actor. You know, the opening sequence is really dear to me. The opening of the, the blood tournament in season one, Azera fighting Reza. And, you know, I think it's sort of tied also to it's like one of the first things I heard brought to life. I was like, oh, wow, okay, this is this is cool. This is the level yeah. this can be at. I just didn't know that an audio-only experience could be that. And the mix in Dolby and everything, you know, Ben or mix, everybody, like... Yeah. So that, I think, is, is really, really special to me. But this is a bit of a cheat, but, uh, you know, the, the actors, every, every, everybody who worked on this was just, like, so generous and, and gifted and, and just got it. And um, so, yes, this, the right. sound of the acting, that's <laughs> such a cheat. Um, but, yeah. No, that's, that's valid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you'll allow it. Thank you, Shin. <laughs> All right. So, and in this season, we have um, we have a main episode, and each of these episodes is accompanied by like a m much shorter mm -hmm. episode that yeah that dives a little deeper into say the mythology or the or the backstory. Mm -hmm. So almost like a short story. Mm -hmm. So, what is the thought process or inspiration behind these short stories? They were born out of just a conversation that Rob and I had about ways to deepen the mythology and something that wasn't necessarily a performance-driven. Yeah. My first love was Greek myth, and then shortly after that was was poetry. And um, I love you know prose poetry. Charles Simich is maybe my favorite poet, and you know, and short stories that form you know Haruki Murakami's. My favorite writer of all time, and his short stories are so influential on me. Um, and I love the form so much. So I was like, yeah, can I sort of step outside of the the world language and kind of write in a more kind of um, prose and something that feels a little more modern and just tell little context things that might be interesting to, you know, in our, our first episode, our first bonus is a little bit about Gaia, Azara's sister who's passed. And I think be, because Gwendolyn, our keeper, narrates them, they feel really tied to the world, but sort of outside. So it, it, I, I really love them. They're very, very close to my heart. I got to pretend I was a, a, a short story <laughs> you know, like uh, my 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 best uh, New Yorker short story uh, impression, um, and <laughs> that was just really fun to get to to get to do that and and kind of work that muscle. And yeah, I mean, I hope with future seasons that you know we can continue to explore different even time periods within mm -hmm. the mythology. We talk a lot about you know different ages, the Song Age, the Crow Age. Yeah, so it was it was just a, a way to step outside our main narrative and 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 expand the world a little bit. I, I'm I'm really excited by them. I hope people dig them. And speaking of future seasons, <laughs> <laughs> so this season introduces the main characters in mm -hmm. each of these clans and their respective woes. So, and without giving too much away, mm -hmm. can you give us some hint? on how the stories might be connected or if their paths might actually cross. Mm, yes. Well, without giving too much away, I can say that, yes, their paths mm -hmm. will cross. And what was exciting in, about this season was all of our four heroes, I'll call them that because I like, I think they are, 
got their own kind of standalone introductions and it sort of launched them and Mm -hmm. and our worlds and uh, season two is going to be very much about braiding those worlds together and how they all influence each other you know there'll be some surprising couplings pairings we'll get some some new characters up in the mix but the general idea was that we are charting the rise of the first united empire in this new world Nice. Yes. Nice. That's that's quite a lot for us to chew on. Yes. It's my, for me too. <laughs> As I go back into my story cave and mash the keyboard. Yes, there's a lot. There is a lot going on. Okay. Let's play some favorites. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, first, um favorite part of the process of mm-hmm. bringing this story to life. Um working with the actors. I started my journey as an actor. I still consider myself one it's just my favorite part working with actors getting into their process and seeing the incredible magic they bring and and just like building those performances with them right. you know Chrissy our casting director is brilliant and helped us just find this incredible cast and just working with them was you know it was my favorite part like I love it I could have done it all day I look forward to getting to continue to work with them. So, favorite character? Oh. Yeah. Sorry, I no. put you in a spot right there. <laughs> favorite character. I don't know if I can do it. It changes every day. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'll say the keeper. How about that? That's like, that's a, that's a sort of a cheat. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Because she's sort of the world. <laughs> she sort of represents the whole world. So what about favorite episode? Do you have one? Oh. Uh, that's tough, huh? Nah. No, I can't do it. I can't do it either. Just, <laughs> what I, about... What about, um, okay, any favorite scene or one of your favorite scenes? Favorite scenes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I love the end of uh, of Timo's episode. Uh, just, It's just, it kills me. Every time Azera's prayer to Gaia, you know, that was... Uh, the great, the great B. Norwood, uh, they came in and... and uh, gave this unreal uh, audition and just lit that character aflame for, for me. And I went back and rewrote that monologue for them. And it's just one of my favorite. Yeah. I'm just going to sit here and just go through the whole show <laughs> and be like, that's my favorite, that's my favorite. Uh, and I mean, it sounds like I'm, I'm so hyped on my own world, but uh, I'm so proud of it. You know, there's so many, so many moments I'm, I'm proud of. It would be a bummer if I was just like, yep, this is my favorite thing because everything else sucks. But, you know, it's just, so, it's hard to choose. I just, I'm, I'm in love with so many of these. Yeah. And I'm glad I'm the one asking these questions and not answering that because I wouldn't be able to. I know, just yeah. sending me into an existential crisis. <laughs> My hope for the show is that it takes on a, a life of its own and, and that, you know, listeners can really start to take ownership of it and feel like it's theirs because that's, you know, one of the great dream as a, as a storyteller, as a writer, is to write a new myth, you know, a new American myth that is inclusive for people like me and the impossible goal I'm striving towards is to contribute 
to the mythology with many voices that are traditionally been shut out of the business of myth-making within our culture to kind of redefine what those myths look like, to redefine what those myths sound like and who tells them, you know? So that sounds kind of kind of lofty and, and whatever, but it's very, very hard when you don't see or feel yourself within the mythologies of your culture and it has a long-lasting effect that you may or may not feel or understand until much later. But, you know, to have something that was conceived uh, by creators of color and, and brought to life in that spirit, with that point of view, mm-hmm. you know, I hope that audiences of, of all backgrounds can, can relate to it. I hope that as kind of storytelling evolves and as our sensitivities evolve, that, you know, my, my daughter, who is, you know, Somali, Chinese, just has a lot of stories where she sees herself and never kind of feels excluded and never feels like, oh, maybe I don't exist or maybe uh, my point of view isn't important, you know, and uh, that's a long way of saying in a lot of ways this whole thing is um, it's for my daughter, it's for young me, it's for, you know, the young version of my wife who was always looking for herself in these things and, you know, for for any kid that feels, you know, outside or, or shut out. This is a story ultimately about outsiders who don't feel like maybe they belong in their tribes and their clans and who discover that they do, you know? And that's the very simple version of mm-hmm. it. These conversations are, are really nuanced and I'm glad they're happening. But ultimately, I want to just tell a cool story that people connect with. And I think we're on our way to doing that. You know, that's not for me to say. <laughs> that's for, for audiences. And I hope that it my dream, like I said, is for it to become not mine. Like all myths, they don't belong to their creators. They belong to the people who adopt them and see themselves in them. And that's um, that's my lofty hope for this project. <laughs> I love that. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. And we got a little peek into what to expect in season two. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, I got to get to work. <laughs> must get to work. I got to go. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Jason, for chatting with us today and sharing all that and letting us pick your brain. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was uh, awesome to sit down with you. And, you know, um, I think our audience should know also that uh, Shin was such a huge you are such a huge, oh. huge part of bringing this to life. Uh, that is something that Shin, that you are being very modest about. <laughs> but Shin is an un- unbelievable producer, and uh, you're, you know, I'm so grateful to have had you Thank on the you project. Thank you for that. Thank you. You guys heard Jason what he said about season two, so stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yes. <laughs> Special thanks to Jason Liu, produced by Shinyan Hiyu. Audio engineering by Ryan Walsh. Edited by Neely Oftering. Mixed by Ben Milchev. Music by Darren Johnson. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. 
From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.